you know, regardless where you're at, you know, people don't see the name on the bat. They don't see the, the patch, right? They see the badge. You know, I was a 21 year old kid. Uh, I think it was just learning that. And that was one of the first times really as a police officer that I really saw firsthand, hey man, not, not everyone's gonna like us on this job and, and we make mistakes. And so that was kind of where my feeling was that those things were going on. Except the fact that when we wear this badge that we wear so proudly, that it didn't always shine so brightly and that we are all born with original sin on this job. And you don't know that. And particularly in 1992, when you're uh, in the academy, you don't get taught that. Is uh, not quite certain people understand with methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, things of that nature, of the impact that that has on neighborhoods, communities. Uh, I'm not quite certain people truly understand how important it is for units to be able to be called upon when you have that drug dealing house on your street, right? Where you can just pick up a phone and call. If you do want to be a leader and you have that passion and you end up putting in for multiple agencies, just make sure that you can credibly look at your men and women, credibly look at your community and say that you really want to be there and why. And I didn't need to figure that out. I really wanted to be here. You know, obviously the ninth largest city in the country, the population size, the growth, and the challenge. Uh, and I, I enjoy the challenge. It's, you know, every day people come up to me when things are going on and they'll go, Chief, are you okay? <laughs> and I go, I'm fine, I'm fine. There's not a major city chief in America that doesn't know there's going to be issues every day. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assistant Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal, and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back listeners. I want to say thank you again for all the support. We're only 16 episodes in and already over 14,000 downloads and we've appeared in 20 countries I'm really grateful for all the Italy and Germany folks that are tuning in we are right in the thick of the holidays and on the eve of 2022 and it's our pleasure to welcome on today's guest he grew up in Puerto Rico and as a boy moved to San Jose and learned to speak English he earned his bachelor's degree from Union Institute and University. He became a police officer in San Jose in 1992 and worked units such as patrol, narcotics, homicide investigator, and special operations merge. In 2016, he was named the chief of police of San Jose. His administration started the Read to Succeed program and launched the Spanish Facebook page which increased the minority recruiting. After completing 29 years at San Jose, he applied for the Dallas Police Department 
and became the 30th, 30th police chief and first Latino to serve in this position in Dallas PD's 140-year history. He is an absolute diehard Dallas Cowboy fan. He has badass tats. He's a beast in the gym. He does not like to be called sir. I've been told it's Chief or Eddie. It's an honor to welcome on the leader of the Dallas Police Department, Chief Eddie Garcia. Chief, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Welcome to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Chief, you ready to dive into this? Let's go. You are now on the ATO's stage. Growing up Puerto Rico, can you describe that family life? Well, growing up in Puerto Rico, you know, I was young when I was there and, uh, you know, had a, you know, great family, mom, dad, sister growing up. Uh, remember doing all the things. Remember, you know, just a casual trip was uh, driving through the beach. Uh, we, our favorite beach was Luquillo Beach. Uh, but we would drive and always see the rainforest to the right. And you know what? I mean, just uh, it was one of those one of those types of uh, environments where, you know, yeah, obviously when you live there, you don't realize what else is what else is out there. Right. Uh, but really, we we're really close family uh, in Puerto Rico. And uh, things didn't seem at that time, particularly I was young, but th- things didn't seem too much different than what they seemed when we fir- when we uh, when we ended up coming to the mainland, uh, you know, so. Uh, I had a, it was enjoyable as a, as a young as a young kid, young child there. Obviously, speaking Spanish, uh, which as uh, I can't tell you how much that's helped uh, through uh, my career. Uh, but uh, but it was an, it was an enjoyable time there. As a kid, what fascinated you with the United States and other than the Dallas Cowboys? Yeah. Well, honestly, at the time, I didn't know what was going on. Really, my dad, uh, my father worked for Pan American Airlines actually at the time, and. Uh, he got some trips going out to to California. I think he had uh, he had a cousin uh, that lived in San Jose, and uh, you know, and I always say that jokingly because you know normally you would think we had some cousins in New York or Miami or something, but we went straight to San Jose and bypassed all that all that what you normally think of, and came to San Jose and uh, and so at the time I didn't really know much. It was really just starting over, uh, and uh, when we got to the mainland. Uh, it's interesting calling it the mainland, right? It's kind of like Hawaii as well right, when you yeah. think about it, right? Puerto Rico's part of the United States. Uh, but uh, but I didn't know what we were getting into. You know, I was just young. I remember one day, though, my father was coming out first to San Jose. And he was uh, there was a suitcase that was out there. And I wasn't coming at the time. And I remember myself, uh, and I was young. I was probably at the time when he was first coming out here because I came out. You know, I, you know, when he started coming out, I was four and I finally got here. I think I was around five. And uh, I remember thinking that I was going to go with him the very first time. And I remember starting to pack my stuff into his suitcase. And I'll never, ever forget. I had two wiffle ball bats and they wouldn't fit in the suitcase. So I put them diagonally in the suitcase. Uh, and then my father comes in to kind of break the news that I wasn't going with him. And that didn't go well. I do remember <laughs> that. And uh, and so, yeah, it was just a new start. What was your favorite part of California, other than the perfect weather? You know, the weather was great in California. The diversity is great in California. I really uh, enjoyed that as well. Um, you know, people were very open uh, to us uh, when we first got there. Um, you know, uh, you know, I say this, and I'll say this again. And you know, the you know the best part of California, looking back, are the men and women of the San Jose Police Department. 
because as I've often said, there's no way that I even be here if it weren't for the amazing work that they did. Um, quite frankly, without the support uh, that, you know, that others could receive in other places, I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but that's, you know, really what I, what I loved about California. The weather was great in California. You know, my children, uh, grew up and, uh, had, you know, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you always want your kids to have a better life than you had, uh, and being able to do that for them there. Uh, I owe a lot to the city of San Jose for giving me a chance. Um, I know we'll kind of go back to what it was like, but I mean, I always think about it. I mean, I, I think back and I go, I mean, I was a kid that learned how to speak English. Uh, in San Jose and then was able to rise to be the chief of police in that city, um, which was pretty cool. And so every once in a while, I just think back and I'm like, man, that was just, uh, it was great. I mean, obviously I'm not a fan of the politics of California. Um, and I'm sure we can get into that in a little bit as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, but, uh, but I don't want to take away from the fact that I had a great time there. Uh, when we got there, they accepted us, they accepted our family, learned how to speak English there. Um, yeah, the weather was fantastic. Uh, the people were great. Uh, the diversity is great. Uh, and there was a lot of opportunity there. Whenever you, I saw you as a finalist for the position, you know, it, I'll be honest, the first thought I had was like, Oh, California, you know, and I was worried about that when it comes to <laughs> West coast policing versus coming to yeah, California Texas. or Texas. And then I was like, damn, he's going to be a Niners fan. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I really, I was like, oh, God. But I know you love the Cowboys. How did that happen? You mentioned before that you actually learned, you didn't, you knew about the Cowboys before you knew how to speak English. Yeah, I often do say that. And it's interesting. I'm sure we'll get into that as well. But yeah, I, when I first got here, I heard my Don't California, my DPD uh, quite a few times, yeah. uh, which, you know, I wear that as a badge <laughs> of honor now. Uh, but yeah, as I've often said, man, my two favorite teams are the Dallas Cowboys and actually whoever the 49ers play. I love it. And, you know, you know, when we go back, you know, and I, I tell these people, tell people all the time that, you know, back in the mid seventies, if you remember, right, we didn't have ESPN, we didn't have all that stuff. Right. And it was, uh, at the time the, the Niners weren't very good. Uh, the Raiders were pretty good, which is why I don't dislike the Raiders. Uh, but Cowboys, that was kind of like the heart of America's team at that time. Right. And there were, you couldn't get away from Dallas Cowboy things. And so I decided to be different uh, and uh, fell in love with that team. I don't know my mom sends me pictures all the time of me sitting there as a, as a young kid with these stupid, you know, high brim hats that, uh, that she sends me. There's pictures of me with Dallas Cowboy gear ever since I was a little kid. Uh, but again, it was really just that, you know, the, the marketing of the Cowboys yeah. and the height of America's team that got this, this kid. And again, coming into to California or right, in Puerto Rico, I mean, let's face it, man, we're, we're a baseball we're a baseball place. Right. And uh, my mom and my father were huge baseball fans. My mom's favorite player, Roberto Clemente, and she knew the family and things of that nature. So we were big baseball fans, right? So coming here, it was kind of like we were out of a sponge. I love sports. Uh, and that was a team that, that I ended up riding with from the start. Well, they were America's team. They had Captain Comeback. And then they had the Cowboys cheerleaders. And they had Clint Mur Murchison and Tech Schramm were running it. They – the, the Cowboys back then were looked at as what everybody else wanted to be like, especially when it comes to the promotion. And what was your favorite Cowboy team and why? Oh, man, I guess my favorite Cowboy team really would have been um, in 93 
uh, was the first time that, uh, you know, after Jimmy Johnson came on, uh, they had a rough, uh, they had a rough year, uh, that first year. And then, you know, as they, as they built and built and built, I mean, when you looked at what they had, you know, that was one of the most complete teams, you know, that I think we've ever had. Um, well, I just say, I guess in the modern era, since I, you know, in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, uh, really, I love Jimmy Johnson. Uh, I was a big, I mean, my, my college team and they've dropped on and Jimmy Johnson made me be a U fan. And (laughs) so I loved him when he was at the university of Miami and when he came, uh, you know, I'll never forget one of Jimmy Johnson isms. Uh, he made a comment. Someone asked him about recruiting a receiver that ran like a four, six, four, seven or something like that, something around there. And I may be off a little bit, but I remember his comment back was, yeah, he's going to be a possession receiver. And I'm like, Jimmy wanted, Jimmy loved his speed. Uh, he was a, a player's coach. Um, you know, obviously I love Troy Aikman, uh, and Emmett, that offensive line we had, um, the receivers we had, um, our defense. I mean, it was just a total team, you know, and that was, uh, and that's probably, that's, that's probably my favorite team. I'm, I'm actually listening to a book right now. It's called boys will be boys. I don't know if you ever read that book or, or it's phenomenal. You got to check it out. It's, uh, it's basically about the Cowboys of the nineties and how it goes in depth of how. Jimmy and Jerry's relationship, how Jimmy got the job and all the infighting and all the off the field issues. It's, it's great. I'm listening to, I'm like in the middle of it now and I'm, it's bringing back a lot of memories that you're talking about. And I forgot how damn good that defense was. Yeah. With Russell, I mean, Ken Norton, all those guys and, you know, uh, Smith shutting down rice in those championship games is, it, it was incredible. Yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah. I have to look at that book. Yeah. I'll, I'll get it to you. It's good. Um, baseball fan, Oakland A's. Um, so you're a LaRusa, Tony LaRusa fan? Well, you know what I liked when the, when the Bash Brothers, Brass Brothers were there? I think LaRusa's a, LaRusa's a good coach. And, and, I mean, I say Oakland is probably, uh, you know, the team that I root for the most. But I'm really just a baseball fan in general. You know, there was a period of time when I was a Mets fan. There was a period of time when I was a Braves fan because my favorite baseball player is Greg Maddox. And uh, although I, everyone says, that's your favorite baseball player? And I go, well, as a pitcher, if you saw Greg Maddox pitch and the way he – he fought, you know, and his uh, nickname Mad Dog was perfect. So I'm more of a baseball overall fan, um, but uh, but I do root for the A's. Okay. <clears throat> Growing up in, in Cali, what made you decide to go into law enforcement as a career? You know, in uh, 2016, in my high school, there was a research paper that was called an eye search paper for English class. And uh, one of my buddies at the time, his father was a sergeant for a nearby police department. And I ended up saying... You know, I'll let me interview him. So I interviewed him about it, and I go, man, this is a this is a job that I think you know that that that, that sounds fun, right? That I really want to do. And as we started doing that, I became a cadet for a local agency, and I started doing that, and started seeing the work, and started realizing, man, I really this is really what I want to do. You know, and then, uh, you know, in my you know in 1989, and I say this all the time, in 1989, there was this little show that started called Cops. Yeah, oh, yeah. And I tell you what, <clears throat> you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, a little show called Cops that started in 1990. I think it ran for like 30-plus seasons or what have you. But And, again, man, we know law enforcement is a lot more than what we see on Cops. But I will say this. If there's any individual that got hired in the late 80s, early 90s like I did, that told you that they did not become a cop for watch because of Cops, they're lying to you. 
uh, 100% lying to you. And I'm not afraid to say that. I say that all the time. I mean, and like I said, you know, as we've grown up in, in our careers and organizations, we understand there's a lot more to police work and public safety than just what we saw on cops. But as a young man, uh, you know, anybody that tells you that that was not part of the reason that they wanted to become a police officer in the late 80s, early 90s would be lying if they said otherwise. <laughs> it's funny, yeah, because... It was an interesting show, regardless of whether you liked law enforcement or not. And how could you not? It's the uh, who was that? Who was that band that did that song? Who was the, the Bad Boy song? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. The I don't band. remember yeah, that. But oh, yeah. once you heard that, you're like, oh, it's time to watch this. You never oh. knew what you're going to see, and then they no, were here in Dallas, and then we beat up a diabetic, and then it was over with. So yeah, I was done with that. Yeah. <laughs> you started in February 1992 at San Jose, and then later in that year, the LA riots happened. What was going through your mind as a young rookie officer in California at the time that was going on? Because I was, I was in, I was in um, close to graduating, and everybody was aware of that incident and the riots. Uh, what went through your mind as that was going on? Well, you know, we didn't experience at that time, you know, what was occurring in L.A. and in that area. It, you know, it, obviously back then we didn't have the social media and all the other, you know. Uh, platforms that we have today where people would know what was occurring and then people would mobilize, you know, to protest and those types of things. But we were just getting information and education on it. Right. Um, you know, not going to lie. Right. Obviously when you see, and I call it the straw that broke the camel's back because there's an interesting documentary on Netflix called LA 92 that looks at the Rodney King incident and then backtracks as to all the issues that were occurring in the LA area at the time, where as in most incidents that we've had of social unrest in the last 30 years, we look at that one incident as, as the incident where it really was just a flashpoint of a lot of things that were occurring uh, in, you know, in historically in those particular areas. And so we're just getting uh, information on what was occurring and what was going on but to to tell you the truth, in in up in north in Northern California, you know, basically we were just watching like the rest of the world was watching, mm-hmm. and understanding and knowing that, you know, regardless where you're at, you know, people don't see the name on the bat, they don't see the the patch, right? They see the badge, right? And understanding, you know, I was a 21 year old kid, um, you know, I had turned 21 in December, and my academy started that February. So, you know, I was, I was really young and to see that really, again, a sponge soaking, soaking everything up of what I'm seeing. And, you know, the reality of it is, is when you see what was on the news and the media and other things of that nature, really, you take that as a young cop, right, going out and really understanding and not understanding, quite frankly, why in some areas people, it's yes, sir, no, sir, how can I help you, sir? And in other areas, you're met with what you feel is disrespect that, you know, oftentimes, whether we like it or not, there's a reason for it, right? There's a, or at least there's a reasoning in people's minds for it as to how law enforcement, uh, you know, historically, uh, at times, uh, we've been our worst enemy. Oh, of course. And we need to live up to that, right? Which is, and, you know, we'll, you know, we'll get, again, we'll talk about some things later that we instituted in San Jose, but uh, I think it was just learning that. And that was one of the first times really as a police officer that I really saw firsthand up close and personal from watching and being part of the training and being told by our, uh, you know, FTOs and TAC officers and things of that nature of what was occurring. 
that I really started learning that, hey, man, not, not everyone's going to like us on this job, and, and we make mistakes. And, and so that was kind of where my feeling was that those things were going on. Um, how, how old were you when you started? Uh, 21. As a, as a 21-year-old up to that point, I mean, I, I don't know what California was like at that time. I know this, this kind of was a cusp of uh, uh, not uh, just a change in general, but as a 21-year-old digesting this, I mean, what, what did you think as far as uh, your, your point and take on everything that was going on at the time as a 21-year-old? I mean, as 21, we're usually pretty... Um, trying to think of the word but we're usually you know not inspirational but we're still young enough but we're at that that early infinite stages of adulthood and then of course you jumped into law enforcement so that's that's a huge change for a man or a woman when they do that it's an eye-opener for the world I mean did you think that this was going to be like a change or a turn for California in general or maybe the U.S. or just for law enforcement because that that was a big deal I mean that was huge and that changed a lot right I mean uh, things like this had been going on around the U.S. for quite some time, right? It's just now all of a sudden we have cameras. You know, we got the, the old big VHS that people carried around, and now we go to where, we, you know, you got, well, we carry cameras, right? So it's just uh, just the in general of the, you know, having that camera system there, having people aware, because once this happens, just like anything else, now everybody wants to record everything. It's no, just like you mentioned cops, right? Cops have been running, and of course you have a live cameraman running around with that, but <clears throat> just curious how how you kind of perceived all that as a, as a young adult. Well, you know what, let's start with the elephant in the room. Obviously the images of the car stop and the force used on Rodney King that night, and, you know, as a young cop, well, first of all, I'll just say this: as an older, as an older cop, <clears throat> excuse me, as an older cop, uh, whenever you see something and then have to ask yourself why did that happen, that's usually a red flag. And in that particular situation, you know, quite frankly, as a 21 year old, I had to ask that. Was you, as you look at those images over and over again, and the images that PR 24 are going back and forth, you're got to ask yourself, you know, that's not how. You know, that's certainly not what I was taught here. That's what you're thinking to yourself. And you're trying to see, to figure out why why it is that that occurred. Uh, but then also, what you don't understand and what they we didn't understand as much back then, because as you all know, there's been a lot of pushback up until recently, a few years ago, for us to really truly accept our past you know, accept the fact that when we wear this badge that we wear so proudly that it didn't always shine so brightly and that we are all born with original sin right. on this job. And you don't know that. And particularly in 1992, when you're uh, in the academy, and again, we'll get into this a little bit later, but when you're in the academy, you don't get taught that, right? You don't get taught the deep-rooted issues that have occurred in American law enforcement that we're not very proud of that, that when incidents like that occur why individuals think what they do, right? And so that doesn't come till later. And so if you don't get taught that, then you go in trying to make a, you know, a black and white type of analysis on what you're seeing and then ask yourself, so why is everyone so angry about what had occurred if you don't understand the history? And so that was, you know, that, that I'm fairly certain if you were a young police officer, such as myself, 21 years old in the early 90s, that you may have thought the same. Uh, if you didn't, if you didn't understand that, 
And so, you know, going through my mind was just trying to see the why and then asking my, and then looking at, you know, particularly when you see, if you watch that documentary 92 and then see the aftermath of it, you know, when you see individuals, you know, uh, looting and rioting and asking yourself, I mean, they're, I mean, this is in their own neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? This is, this is where they live and try to make sense of it all. Right. Uh, and you know, if you don't have that understanding at that time, as I didn't to understand the full capacity of it, right. Um, you, you, you go out just, you know, there's really, there was nowhere, there was the one thing I will say, there was no one there to have made sense of that for us. Right. Uh, um, you could, you, you couldn't. And, but I will say this, I would have appreciated at the time, someone to come in and make sense of it for us. Yeah, and it's funny you say that, Chief, because uh, we'll, we'll probably talk about it in a minute, but just to touch on it, you said taught. You know, uh, it, it's, yeah, it's something that you're you're not taught, but you're also not taught to be that way on the street, right? That can come with, as you know now, as you've learned with all your years of law enforcement experience, that those are things that are learned, but also it touches into, you know, we get into like uh, – you know, no one comes into the academy and tells you, hey, these are the things that you're going to face on the street, right? Not necessarily the man, the woman, the fight, but the internal fight that you're going to face when it comes to your pent-up frustration from from home life, work life, tensions, whether it be racial, religious, whatever it may be. These things are all factors that every man and woman has to deal with, but they don't tell you that when you when you get to the academy, right? This is just, you know, well, we just hope everybody's good and, and we all go about our way. But just like you, you know, you mentioned, you're not taught that, but, and it's not necessarily learned, but I mean, that thing just surfaced a lot. I was just curious, you know, as a young officer coming in and looking at this and going, wow. And then as a senior officer now and a leader of a department, you know, you look at it and you hit all the points on that, right? I mean, it's just something that's, it's unfortunate, but at the time, you know, we, times haven't changed they've changed from the point to where we're out there doing this right but uh as far as people are people they're human beings and they all have an emotional standard and a threshold and uh and doesn't excuse anything but just i was just curious and from that sense no no i mean that's you know oftentimes (laughs) particularly when these emotional incidents happen in american law enforcement you know, I, I, I hearken back to the times where you know 10 years 20 years before i began in 92 basically you you had like a whatever the abridged academy was. You got a you got a, a book that said, uh, "Here are your general orders. Go." Yeah. Right. And you hear those stories all the time. And and oftentimes I think that we're getting better at it now. Mm-hmm. But when these type of incidents occur, right, that are flashpoint moments, uh, we can't just say, "Okay, um, figure out what you guys are going to figure about that incident and go on your own." Right. Right. We we have to we have to talk about it and. And so, you know, we're, we're getting better at it. Uh, like I said, we're not, this is an imperfect profession. Uh, I wish we could be perfect in everything we do, but we are not. Uh, but uh, as we, as, as the profession continues, uh, we get better at it. Oh, yeah. What's an imperfect world? And, and what made that such a flashpoint is actually c- captured on video. And, and like uh, Josh was saying, that now we're all wearing videos ourselves to record great behavior good behavior and bad behavior uh on on everybody's side but there's no way to look at that video and i'm actually i'm excited to watch that documentary you're talking about there's no way to look at that video (laughs) and see any make any justification for that and i remember watching that in high school i was thinking oh my god i'll be honest with you as i'm sitting there and again i know what i know but just 
just with what I'm, you know, with what you saw, again, I just keep, you cannot get the images of that PR24, you know, going back and forth. And then, and the, and then the acquittal, right? You really are kind of like, I mean, I guess in disbelief a little bit and then not understanding the ramifications that that's going to have because, again, not knowing and not being taught uh, the past history, uh, you know, had that effect. And uh, and so then, you know, I would imagine most academy classes just kind of moved on from that and were not given. That would have been a great opportunity. That would have been a great teaching point to, you know, to really drill down on what occurred, why it occurred and why. Not the why necessarily, because you know what I, I don't. Ex you can. I'm not going to excuse the looting and the and the and the and the rioting and the the hurt and pain that that caused uh, business owners and houses and the homes and we all see the images. But to at least get an understanding as to why that was such a historic moment in time. And we've and we've come light years right from '92 oh, law absolutely. enforcement right. But then you look back to a couple of years ago. And we are we're right back in the same boat. It has this this roller coaster ride of you know here here it comes again. We we you know twenty was it twenty fourteen is when it kind of kicked off, and then we subsided. And then we had uh, of course we had our event here in here in Dallas, uh, July seventh, and uh, that kind of put a squash to it. You know for a while the uh, rhetoric, and then we go right back into it. It's it's not the same thing, but there's still toting the same images of what this was comparative to where we are now in the 2020. Well, everything's cyclical. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, and a lot of it has to do with whatever rhetoric is going on. And social media uh, has really uh, fanned that flame and poured gas on everything because uh, it could – the good and bad and indifferent, or uh, it, it just spreads like wildfire. Yeah, no, absolutely. Chief, uh, you worked in patrol – Narcotics, special ops, a homicide detective. Is there any operations or critical incidents in narcs, narcotics that stand out to you? Ah, well, there's a you know there's a, there's a few obviously that that, that stood out. Um, I think some of the things in in narcs that stood out to me were uh, buying dope undercover. Uh, you know, every once in a while, when I tell a story, I say buy dope, mm -hmm. and then I got to throw out the undercover part in there. Right. Uh, but yeah. you know, there's there's two Should parts. You know, when I worked, we worked street level narcotics, and at the time, if our undercover narcos narcotic guys gals couldn't make a buy for us, then we give them the right of first refusal, and then we would we would do a buy. But I tell you what, the one time, the first time that I bought dope, it was on 34th Street. And I knock on the door. It's for Coke. And, you know, the guy lets me into the house. And then, you know, you have your, you know, your arrest team and you got everything else. And you got your, your bust out word and your phrase or whatever. You got your wire on. But he lets me in. You're by yourself. And then the dude proceeds to lock the wrought iron gate with like three locks, locks yeah. the front door with a few locks. And I tell you, and I know our narco guys will smile or what have you, man. But then he walks into the back room to get the dope. And I tell you what, man, for those like three minutes, right? Because you know, hey, you know what? This goes bad, man. I'm, I, I'm on my own here for the next, you know, three to five minutes, depending on how quickly at least, right? And they better bring the hooligan. Because, uh, you know, they better get through that gate. 
And uh, just, I mean, I tell you what, it's almost like, I mean, I know I made the buy, but I don't even remember end up doing the, I mean, right now as I look back, I've just remember those feelings of that of anxiety that pucker factor that pucker yeah. factor of uh of like okay here we go and it's like you're almost like okay you are talking yourself out of getting out of your bladed stance when the guy comes back into the room uh but that was memorable to me and that was that was enjoyable you know another time i'm buying uh uh again undercover um uh, buying crack cocaine uh on on one of our downtown streets and I mean, it's funny. I looked a lot younger than I do now, but I, and I had hair, but that's about it, right? And that's one of the things that I always say. It was never the way you look, right? It's your attitude that, uh, that yeah. makes you a good, a good narc, and I know all of our narcs realize and understand that as well. Um, you know, and, and back then, you know, I didn't, wear the, I didn't wear the customary flannel with the fanny pack, so that kind of <laughs> helped me out as well. All of us that have been around remember that flannel and customary fanny pack uh, that we would wear. But leave the weapon. Yeah. But... Uh, but I remember meeting the guy. Um, we had uh, undercovers, and we had uh, point people saying who the dealer was, and you know, I make eye contact with him. I'm sitting on a bunch bench, a bus bench, and he asks me at the time, and I was, geez, I was a net, I was probably 25, maybe I think I was 25 or so, and he sits on the bench, and he goes, and he goes, uh, and he goes, "Are you a cop?" And I remember looking at him, I go, "Am I a cop?" And I told him, dude, I'm the motherfucking chief, <laughs> is what I said. At the time, I said that. And he looks at me because he said, oh, he said, he said, you look too fresh. That's what he said. He said, you look too fresh. And I go, I'm the motherfucking chief. And he was on a bike. So he rides a bike around, and then he comes back to the bus bench. <laughs> and then he does the, I'm sure that happened here as well. He does the typical, he puts the rock on the bus bench and then tells me to put the 20 next to him. As if that's not a yeah. that's not a hand to hand, right? It was hilarious. So then grab that, go. We bust him out because it was one of those street level operations. We bust him out. Anyway, the DA's office actually heard the wire, and then put and they uh, the DA the filing DA for Narco at the time for like the next month had the like statement on his wall for a while <laughs> of the guy asking me if I was a cop and me telling him I was a chief. <laughs> Uh, so it's that foreshadowing was foreshadowing for was gonna come there. Yeah, <laughs> no, I guess I didn't know that at the time, yeah. right? But uh, but anyway, uh, working street level narcotics was so much fun. Um, it was enjoyable. I don't think people understand and realize. And he's one of the one of the downfalls of California, quite frankly, because uh, I'm not quite certain people understand with methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, and things of that nature of the impact that that has on neighborhoods, communities. Uh, and we had a unit at the time in San Jose, and you know. We had our we had our pension and our mass exodus in San Jose as well, where we weren't able to do that anymore. And losing that, our neighborhoods lost something. Uh, I'm not quite certain people truly understand how important it is for units to be able to be called upon when you have that drug dealing house on your street, right, where you can just pick up a phone and, and call. You know, uh, we got a lot of drugs off the street. Uh, you know, and, uh, and very proud of the work that we did, but particularly proud of the work because that was the number you called, you know, um, you called the net hotline, you left, uh, I mean, so I was back in the day, right. In, in San Jose anyway, I mean, you called the net hotline within a week, you had a, a narco detective calling the RP asking where the problem is. And, you know, within maybe a few days after that, you had some people working the house and, and doing things. And so, I mean, buying dope on a cover was extremely memorable. I think that was the first time really learning how to work UCs. 
uh, and things of that nature and, you know, working them and making control buys and having them do intros for narco and, you know, uh, you know, and I, I will tell you this, my very first search warrant, my very first search warrant in net, I came out dry. Yeah. That was not a good feeling. Uh, and I got made fun of a little bit on that one. Uh, and I, uh, and I, and then, uh, you know, we had buys into the house because that's one of my things that we, I had a good sergeant at the time that always said, hey, listen, before we hit the house to just get the possession for sales, you can never guarantee, right, when someone's in pocket. Oh, absolutely. Or when they have the product or what have you. Uh, but I had a really good sergeant that taught us really well. And like now, obviously, that's like second nature, right? But at the time, you know what? You want that excitement of hitting the house. Let's do it first. And you know, one of the good things is, you know, when we do, we do, we would do buys and get them on, on the buys of the, at the time in, in San Jose in the early nineties, it was, uh, powder cocaine or cocaine hydrochloride, uh, crack, and then heroin. And it was uh tar heroin that, oh, that yeah. was on the, uh, on the West coast for the most part. And those were the prevalent drugs in the early '90s. Meth was a li- meth was coming up, obviously, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. It didn't take over like it did until a few years later. Uh, but um, and so it was always getting those buys in to be able to really take care of the problem, right? My my sergeant was a real stickler of no duck ponds. He said, "Hey, listen, we're not here for you to sit on a house to get a re- ten arrests out of that house. You want you go, the house. You want the house." And that was kind of the first times that it kind of taught me that. You know, let's solve problems, right? That's the goal is to solve the problems, not to stat, uh, pat our stats, right? There's plenty of houses. Move on to the next one. There's plenty of things that we can be doing and plenty of places that we can clean up. So that was a part, not only from a work perspective, enjoyable perspective, but it really started form- forming the way I kind of look at things now with regards to solving problems as opposed to just uh, keep looking at places like duck bonds. Well, it's a bigger picture uh take on it because the you want the house because people are calling in that actually have to live amongst that crap they have to live and deal with that activity day to day and anytime you have drugs there's always violence that comes along with it uh, i was going to ask you what was the the big drug going on there in uh, in california um here in texas and dallas especially we have a huge drug problem um i worked the southeast division for uh close to 20 years and danny and i worked on a unit and and we we had that same approach. We like we wanted the house. We didn't want all the buyers. Sometimes we'd use the buyers as a means to get to the house. But in my last five years at uh, at Southeast, I've got more heroin in than the other fifteen years combined because heroin has become such more. It before when I was two and three years on to get thirty caps of heroin was damn that's a lot. There towards the end, getting like three hundred getting like 300 caps there was i mean that was which we were getting three and 500 caps and it's just crazy of, and we're getting a lot more tar than I ever did in the past that's no, interesting it's interesting how uh you know the the type of drug you know throughout the country kind of differs uh but yeah that's one thing that i remember and talking to my buddies that from the east coast or boston or what have you when i mentioned heroin you know that the, what they knew is the powder powder heroin, right and then, yeah. and we had black tar um but uh PCP was big too. Really? <clears throat> PCP was big. It started dying down a little bit in the 90s, but it was still pretty prevalent in the 90s. But in the 80s, PCP was off the hook uh, in the Bay Area in San Jose. Horrible, That's man. That's right. That's because PCP really started seeing in South Dallas. I remember and it was around 98, 99. We started seeing a lot of PCP. 
more than ever. And it was always sold at the uh, the uh, the hydro weed houses. They kind of sold that. If they sold hydro, usually they coupled it with the PCP. Um, moving from narcotics, you uh, started working homicide investigations there. Mm-hmm. What investigation really stuck with you that was most memorable, if you can recall? Well, there's there's two. Uh, I was a night detective uh, working out of the homicide unit, and then became a, and then I became a homicide investigator before I got promoted. And there's two cases particularly. Well, I'll, let me just say three, right? I mean, the most brutal cases that we ever had, to be honest with you, you know, I had young kids, you know, and at the time in homicide, um, the you know, not just the murders, but ever any baby death is was a responsibility. Any child death was a responsibility of homicide at the time. And there's one particular one that I'll never forget is a little three-year-old drowned in a pool. And we get there in the image of when Fire, who did did a remarkable job trying to save uh, this little boy's life, pulled him out to start performing CPR. When we get, when my partner and I get to the scene and I had three kids, my partner, uh, who ended up being my uh, executive assistant chief, uh, and there was no secret. (laughs) <laughs> when I became chief, who was right. going to be my my assistant chief. My partner in homicide at the time had four kids, right? So combined, we had seven kids together. We get to the scene. I will never forget, Fire had folded the clothes and put his little shoes, like, on top of the shirt next to the pool. I'll never forget that imagery. And what got me on that so much is the fact that there wasn't a criminal offense, right? This was... a this was a mom and dad who lost sight, good people that lost sight of their child for a few minutes. And to me, that hit me because all other homicides somewhat resonated a little bit from yourself going, I could never do that. I could never do that, which makes you successful on the other side of the table when you're talking to somebody and figuring out like, I'm never like this. But in that particular case, right, we kind of remember thinking, man, this could happen to us. Right. And that was, and that was tough. Uh, moving on to another tough one. Never forget this guy's name, this this guy's name, uh, Rodrigo Paniagua. This guy was an intimate intimate, uh, domestic disturbance, and it was intimate partner violence where he stabs his pregnant girlfriend, kills her. Um, You know, she's pregnant, and actually she she had stab wounds in her abdomen, and then proceeds to kill, um, I want to say, two or three other of the kids that were in the house. And then this guy lights the house on fire. And, you know, when we arrive, we couldn't find one of the victims. And my partner and I are kind of going around the house and fire's already, you know, gutted the house and it's, you know, whatever, and no one can find the victim. And I'll never forget, man, I'm in the backyard and I peer into the bedroom man and there's the body of a little charred little girl and i go here's the other here's a here's the last victim so interviewed that dude and listen not getting into all the you know of how you're you know you know trying to have him understand that you understand all that other because that one was listen i'm not a robot that was a tough one it's pure evil um and you sit there right and what keeps us from doing what in our minds, we're like, how can I sit here with this animal? And it's like, you know that you got to do a good job uh, in order to get justice, right? And so you compose yourself, uh, you conduct the interview, 
And this dude like calmly confesses to me uh, after we build rapport and confesses to everything. And uh, that one will always stick with me. Um, he got the death penalty for that case uh, at the time. Uh, and I say at the time uh, because obviously uh, I'm sure he's still on it. Uh, and that was both heartbreaking um, and also satisfying in a way uh, to be able to ensure that this individual, there's a lot, and there's more cases such as like, such like that, but you know, that's the things that, you know, that uh, I know we're going to get into mental health later on. Right. But those are the things that stick with you, you know, for a long time. I think my, my, my most, uh, you know, kind of a funny, well, it's not funny, but uh, one of the stories that I had to tell from homicide was actually my last murder that I had before I got promoted to lieutenant. It was the last case I had. And this individual gets uh, shot uh, at a bar in San Jose. Uh, I remember this one because my little boy, my oldest son, who was probably, I don't know, 10, 11 at the time, they were playing in a soccer championship and I was on call. And I'd been at the soccer game all day and I'm all excited because the next day we're in the championship game. And at freaking 11 o'clock at night, I get the call. And I like, I remember almost being in, like going, I can't believe I'm going to miss this game tomorrow. And so go out to the scene. We check the parking lot, uh, get witnesses. I'll try to make a long story short, but we ended up identifying the guy uh, that did it. And uh, Merge, which was our SWAT team in San Jose at the time. Uh, and Merge was, you know, was, uh, we did fugitive apprehension as well. So we were SWAT and fugitive apprehension and calls me and says, Hey, we got the guy. Um, and so we identify the guy. So we work all night, identify the guy. I go from the PD to the soccer field. I'm still in my, uh, you know, I just take my tie off and I'm good. And so we end up being at the game, uh, stay the game. I mean, you could write a story about this. So my son wins the game in overtime. Yeah. Uh, it goes into extra, whatever they call it in soccer. I don't, I don't know. But whatever, the extra time in yeah. soccer anyway, he wins it uh, uh, in overtime in soccer. And as we're walking to get the trophies, I get a call from the merge sergeant telling me, hey, we got the guy. We're back in route to PD. I'm like, and at that time, and you're not even thinking you haven't slept or whatever. You're right. going, man, and God is watching over me. This is awesome. I mean, it's funny to say, right? I haven't, we haven't slept all night, what have you. We just need that one little break so we can just take part. And, and you know what? I work all night again if I could just see my boy uh, play that championship game. That's awesome. So we go back to the PD, start interviewing the guy, and he confesses to what he did, but he wouldn't tell us where the gun was. And, and, you know, confession's great, but, man, we want you, we need that murder weapon, not only because of the of the crime, but also, you know, for the safety of, of the neighborhoods, right? And so I talk to the guy. We build a rapport. Uh, and people think, you know, obviously our homicide folks, but for listeners or what have you, right, they think that, you know, it's like the movies where, you know, it's packed and everyone's in there and this and that and the other. No, no, no. It, this is now, oh, geez, what is it? Probably one in the morning or so. Uh, I ain't nobody in the in the homicide. It's me and my partner with a murder suspect. That that's it. Mm -hmm. And he asked to call his mom. So you know, I let him call his mom, and he talks to his mom or what have you. And then he sits there and he goes and he slides his wallet over to me, and he says, "Buy me an ultimate cheeseburger, and I'll show you where the gun is." And I go, dude, and I slide his wallet back. It's I go, me. dude, it's on me. <laughs> Well, 
I didn't have like I didn't have money at the time. My partner didn't either, right? So we're scrounging our desks. <laughs> Give me your wallet back. Yeah, we're, we're scrounging. We're scrounging our decks for change and this and that and the other. So we drive down to the nearest Jack in the Box. We put him in the front seat, cuff him to the front. My partner's in the back. He gets his ultimate cheeseburger. He starts eating the ultimate cheeseburger and directs us to this neighborhood and a tree and underneath all the pine needles there was the revolver that he used in the wow. murder oh, I, we wow. would have never found that no and that's right you know the ultimate cheeseburger is a powerful tool it is it's a powerful investigative that... tool and <laughs> and that was my that was my last homicide case before i got promoted uh, that's 1300 funny, calorie cheeseburger well you know <laughs> yes. what I, it solved it that was his wow well it was probably I don't know if he's still in or not, to be honest with you, but that was his last ultimate cheeseburger for a while. Good, as it should have been. Um, <laughs> Chief, I was uh, I was told somebody by somebody that you actually bypassed all these leadership classes and you really didn't. You wanted to be a real cop, and you wanted to stay on the street. What what got you? What convinced you to climb that that rank, the the brass rank? Is there anybody that stands out that that you wanted that kind of pushed you and put that that seed in your head? You know what? At the time, uh, yeah, there's there's a few people. I had my old merge sergeant uh, who was uh, instrumental. I had a, a former assistant chief that was very instrumental, and you know, I had other uh, good partners along the way and mentors that were all cops, right? And you know, one of the things, one of my, my buddies was a robbery sergeant, uh, and it was a robbery dick for years, and one of my mentors, he'd always say, hey, you know what, the reason he got promoted to sergeant because he was tired of stupid people above him making decisions. And that's what he just straight up said to me. I mean, you can imagine that's what a cop would say to someone else. And you know what, I just, you know, the units that I worked and things of that nature, you could always think, man, I would have done it this way a little bit, right? And, you know, I saw some other guys, you know, get promoted. I got promoted fairly early. I had uh, 10 years on as an officer before I got promoted to sergeant. We didn't, we don't have a senior corporal rank. And, you know, to me at the time, though, when I promoted, you know, it was more, I had already worked narcotics and I've already worked merge, right? I'd worked narcotics for almost three years and then merge for seven. So I'm like, okay, I, I think I'm ready, right? Had I not worked those units, I would have said, I'm not ready to do this. But I felt, you know, that I was somewhat ready and that, you know, became when I became a sergeant, then I would go into the investigative route to try to get myself uh, more prepared. Um, but, you know, it was really, you know, a lot of friends just saying that, you know, uh, prepare yourself, that, you know, take every opportunity you can get uh, and still try to make a difference. And the higher you get up, right, the more influence you have over how you think. And, and I think policing should be done in a certain way. Um, and And so as you went up, you know, you have your sphere of influence to finally doing that. But... Yeah, to your point, though, you know, I didn't, I don't have the gold brick sitting on my desk. Um, you know, for your listeners, I know I did not go to the FBI Academy. Um, you know, I was, I got asked to go to the FBI Academy on two occasions. And the first time that I got asked, I was coaching Little League. And I go, there's no way I'm leaving. And the second time I got asked, I'm going to Pop Warner. I was coaching Pop Warner, which is peewee football in California. And I go, I'm not going. And I remember thinking at the time, that was almost like when you're told to go to IA and you say no, that's kind of like a career ender. Uh, and I said no twice. And I'm like, well, you know, if I end up staying a lieutenant for my career, I'm, I'm good with it. And um, and then later on when I became the executive assistant, because I was the, the assistant chief for three years before the chief for five. And, you know, I got asked to go to SMIP, which is senior management and policing in Boston for 30 days. 
And I'm like, I'm already the assistant chief. I don't need to do this. Let me send someone else that can get something more out of this to do that. And so, you know, my, 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 uh, <laughs> my assistant chief, who I said, my assistant chief at the time, Dave Knopf, who was just an amazing individual and uh, amazing detective, uh, you know, he's actually one of my son's godfathers. And so, like I mentioned earlier, when I became chief, there was no question who's going to be my assistant chief. That was probably the worst kept secret in the department at the time. Uh, but he made us, uh, he brought in one day, he brought regular bricks that we put just regular bricks on our, uh, on our desk so that right. it would be a conversation piece as we did it. So, you know, we just like to think, uh, kind of like a blue collar chief, man. I don't, I don't, there's, I always thought, and I've had these conversations with individuals at some of these schools and I'm like, explain to me when they come back, how do they know how to fight crime better? I mean, you know how, I mean, and so working on some of these on some of these classes and things I don't begrudge anybody that goes I do not if you can take something out of it then god bless you and that's great and you can build it and and build yourself and do all that my point in saying the way I did it is you there is not just one way because you you know you may or may not know but I mean you know it's not generally speaking everyone thinks that there's a specific pathway to get to be a chief and there is not just one specific pathway to, to get to becoming a chief. So um, it was just really just trying to to envision myself as kind of influencing people that I work with to kind of do policing in a manner that I think should be should be done. Uh, am I perfect? No. Are we perfect? No. But uh, trying to do that is what kept me going. Um, but uh, but that's how I see myself, and that's how really I started coming up. Are there any policies or procedures that that you implemented that? that you're most proud of there in San Jose? Yeah, you know, one of the things, you know, there's a there's a few program, programs. You mentioned a few earlier. Um, but one of the things, particularly in talking about, you know, when we were talking about 1992 and Rodney King and things of that nature, is one thing that we instituted is we partnered with San Jose State University at the time and actually literally worked on a history of policing class mm-hmm. and worked on a, the ne- basically based on the negative history of American law enforcement. Uh, to teach our officers where the perceptions began, right, and not run and not run away from things and the flashpoints in history, and uh, you know that there were individuals that wore a badge similar to the ones we wore that said said the word slave catcher on them, and and that's his, that's his, that's not opining that that's historical fact, and to teach our officers that listen because going back to what I mentioned earlier, and I was twenty one years old. I would go to certain neighborhoods in San Jose and it'd be yes, sir, no, sir. How can I help you, sir? What can you do? And you'd go to other neighborhoods and oftentimes communities of color and you might be met a little differently uh, with what you perceive is disrespect. And so if you don't know the history of that and as we talk about bias and doing that, how do you drive away from that? You drive away thinking, why is it that one group treats me a certain way and another group doesn't? And I know it sounds elementary now, right? Because it was these last years we have we have really gotten forward on that. But if you don't know the history of why, you don't have to like it, but at least you could need to understand it. So you can walk away from it saying, man, it's not me. It's the history of the uniform. And to understand that you just can't go into certain neighborhoods anywhere in this country and expect people to stand at attention for you. Because that's not going to happen. And 
we got together with the university and had a class uh, that we taught the recruits that history. And then at the end of the class, we would bring students in from San Jose State, uh, students of color from San Jose State University in. We'd had conversations with them and have roundtables, and it was just an amazing event. And and again, I, I mean, I draw that because later on we might get into police work or what have you, but I draw that and I saying, that doesn't mean we're not going to police. That doesn't mean we're not going to be engaged where we need to be. That doesn't mean we're not going to take the criminal element where it needs to be taken off of our streets. That is absolutely imperative to what we do. But we also have to try to understand. We have to also try to understand to bridge that gap. There was a there was a barbershop talk recently here that I had gone to um, that Leroy was running. And, you know, there was a there was a I don't want to call it a contentious moment. There was a young lady that that uh, called us out on on some things that we've done in, in law enforcement. And when I said the words, I know we have done some things that we should not be proud of and we need to learn from that. And you say that credibly and you say that at least, you know, with feeling and emotion and actually mean it when you say it. And it almost brought the conversation back down. We're almost like the argument you have with someone that as soon as they admit they were wrong, then you can start building back from it. But without that knowledge base, we can't credibly do that, right? And so that's probably something that I'm really proud of. And, and again, I say this, we started that. Uh, we started that program in 20, we started the 2016, 2017, right? Which was like, I always say this, I don't like to work in a time of crisis, right? Oftentimes you see police chiefs around the country and something happens and then all of a sudden that triggers, I got to do X, Y, and Z. And I go, what were they what were we doing before crisis hit and you know let's let's not forget right i was lit, we were literally ground zero for the colin kaepernick uh very polarizing uh issues that were occurring at the time so yeah. there was a lot of conversations that were going on and that was kind of the impetus for this not anything other major other than the stuff that we were seeing because i did not want our profession to be painted with such a negative light uh because we're better than that and i know where our hearts are at uh, and we need to be a better job at showing where their hearts are at because we know where our hearts are at, but the community may not know. And certainly the detractors that we have aren't going to uh, preach that for us. We have to do it uh, and have to show that. So, you know, that's... I actually heard about that, the barbershop talk. Uh, uh, Leroy Quigg, is that, he's going to come on here too. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, he's, yeah we got to probably after the first year of recording. Uh, you pretty much sounds like you disarmed it by admitting as opposed to getting defensive about this profession making mistakes well but here's the thing i'll be honest with you i I don't know how many years ago but when i say that as a profession that we are finally willing to make to admit that we've made mistakes like that's the finally willing is a fact i think a few years back I can't remember what IACP president it was, but there was an IACP president that made similar comments that we need to own up for some of our past sins in law enforcement. And they were chastised by a lot of members of our profession. And I remember that because that was kind of newsworthy at the time in our sphere. And then now, you know, that that has now been accepted. And so it hasn't always been the case that we've been able to admit that. And so that's why the more that we can just admit that, it doesn't mean that what we're doing now uh, is not honorable. It doesn't mean any of that, right? Uh, But just, yeah, admitting that we've made mistakes and we need to move forward and get better um, and get better together is is huge. We've had all kinds of critical incidents across the country. 
over the past seven to eight years. From afar, when you were watching, uh, you mentioned uh, being ground zero for the uh, the Kaepernick, uh, uh, you know, the situation and 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 how that evolved. And I, I was a I like Kaepernick. I, I was actually rooting for them against the Packers because I don't like the Packers, but <laughs> especially now. Uh, what went through your mind when you saw our city uh, be attacked on July seventh? And then shortly after the Baton Rouge incident, what was going through your mind as a commander of our uh, what was happening to our profession? You know, you know, I thought our profession was under attack. Um, you know, I'll tell you specifically, I will never forget uh, being in my living room, uh, you know, behind my couch, watching the interviews that watching the incident unfold, watching how it ended. And being, you know, just being in kind of like uh, in disbelief of what I had just seen. Then I got to tell you the truth. Uh, and I did not know Chief Brown at the time. I think I had seen him in a few uh, major city chiefs conferences. But for not knowing the man at the time, and that was the first impression that I got from him, I just said, wow. Um, you know, when he was describing what had occurred, I remember, uh, you know, how his press conferences and describing what happened. And then I started thinking of the officers, you know, of what occurred. Uh, I remember crying. I remember calling all my friends that day. Are you seeing what's going on in Dallas? Are you seeing what's going on in Dallas? Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember uh, really being emotional about it and just in disbelief. Then thinking of my officers, is this going to be a national thing? Uh, do we have to watch what we're doing? Of course, having those briefings, talking to our officers about it, um, you know, but again, very similar to what I've seen in Dallas. Uh, and I would imagine at the time as well, there was a lot of community outpouring, uh, even in San Jose, uh, with regards to the tragedy, uh, and understanding the pain that not only the Dallas police department was going through, but really, as I've spoken about that incident on time, it, it was, we all felt that loss. We all grieved. Uh, we grieved alongside of, it sounds odd to say, you and us at the same time when that occurred. And, uh, you know, we we had to start working on the narrative. We had to listen. We, I mean, I guess probably it was around that point where I kind of, well, not where you kind of think that, listen, no one's going to tell our story for us. We have to do a better job of telling our story. We need to get out there. We need to do these things. So this cop versus community narrative that is ridiculous um, you know can at least have another side to it mm -hmm. the thing about July 7th I think all this when this thing tipped off what in 2014 this 2014 is when we started having all the I forget the first incident Ferguson so Ferguson okay so we'd already gone uh, at least two years because I remember I was in CBD at the time as a supervisor going down there when we had all the protests. And then I was, I was in that building that night as a SWAT supervisor on July 7th. But the, the thing about that is that, and you mentioned the community outpour and I, I don't know that I think we talk about it, but I think a lot of it is just the rhetoric that was forced against us, but it was good to finally see where people felt like it was okay. I think it's human nature for people to 
quietly pat you on the back, right? Because there's a big narrative of, uh, you know, if you do this and you're a racist, if you do this and you're against this, you know, whatever it may be. And, but that, like I mentioned earlier, was like a, a complete stopping point. It was like, okay, we had this. And then right after that Baton Rouge and people were just like, all right, enough is enough. And you're right. It, man, there was, you couldn't come down to headquarters without, you know, Oh man, there are people out there all the time. They camped out there pretty much. I mean, it was just nonstop after that. And no matter where you went, I lived in a the neighborhood. They they put blue ribbons in in my trees, and then I had another jark live down the street from me. They put that up in his. They put it out there on the drive there. There was only three officers that lived in this whole entire peninsula, and that's what they did. And it was like it was incredible just to see that and just realize, okay, yeah, we got this going on, but at the same time, you have the the backing and the strength of a, a lot of people, whether they're boisterous about it or not you know they just it was it was great to see that and the and then the rhetoric stopped right people would try to justify well it's it because i remember watching i don't remember what news channel it was but they had somebody up there that was talking about it one of the um someone that was in opposition of us and they were like well can you justify this well yeah well no it was because because of everything they've done to us they're like so you're justifying the death of people for that x y and z well, it stopped right there, and then they shut that individual down, and then from that point forward, whoever said anything about it was, no, we're done listening to you now. And it was nice to finally see that, but you talk about bridging, you know, and, and that's something that I think we do a good job of now as far as getting with the community and giving them a moment to speak and and uh, having that, that discussion, an open discussion now, whereas it was closed because you mentioned uh, the you know, the barbershop talk and Joe said he had, he had mentioned something. Well, is yeah, we, we aggressively defend ourselves, but not to say we're cannon fodders and we say, okay, somebody says, well, you're doing X, Y, and Z wrong. And we're very apologetic and, and meek about it. It's like, okay, well, let's find the middle ground and find where we uh, can agree to disagree, but agree at a certain point, right? We don't have to fully agree with, oh, you're right. You know, we just don't want to have an argument. No, we're not having an argument. We're having a discussion. You're absolutely correct. We can do better in these areas, but we need your support in these areas to let us do this, right? So that was a that was a huge, huge turning point, you know, especially for me as a supervisor here, but just seeing it from different vantage points and seeing it from a leader's perspective and and because uh, we were we were drilled 24 hours a day from that point forward in SWAT. I mean, it was it it was crazy. But uh, other than that, it was always reassuring when you when you drove down the street and somebody said, you know, I don't, I don't need you to tell me thank you for my service, but it was just the, the support because at that point we're like, what is going on, man? I mean, it was like, you had people leaving law enforcement you had people didn't want to be here. They, the people were scared to death. You know, these officers were scared to just to go out to work. God, you didn't know if you're going to get shot at or what it was, but anyway, I just rambled on. I'm following Chief, did you see pictures of uh, of headquarters during that? After that, we had two. We had a, a Dart squad car there, and we had a Dallas squad car there, head to head, and they were literally covered in cards and and teddy bear. I mean, you name it. You couldn't even see that there was a car underneath. Uh, did you ever see? Did you ever see photos of that? Uh, I don't believe it, I saw photos. I, I, of that. I could. I got to show you that. But it, it was so powerful to see just the crowd that you had out in in, in front of our headquarters at the time and the outpouring and. Um, and for us to put up that memorial, that's that really means a lot. That incident, uh, two of the uh, the SWAT operators were here at the time. Um, wow. That uh, when that happened, uh, Danny actually, his involvement was was 
eyeball deep in that situation uh, with, with that shooter up on that uh, second floor. And Josh was a supervisor, and uh, they both have active roles. That incident changed my career of, of what I wanted to do at the time. Um, so that that incident, uh, uh, we're still recovering from that that uh, that incident, and, and I think the nation is uh, as well. And then right after that, the Baton Rouge uh, that 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 ambush happened too, and we were all felt we were just absolutely under attack. Yeah, no, there's no there's no question that was the, the sense. I mean, I mean, one of those things. I think that also started the necessary portion of when we have these police community relationship conversations, oftentimes it was very community heavy where it was like a 90, 10 type of scenario where I think that's what started kind of in my eyes also shifting the, the conversation to us truly being a stakeholder also in that conversation that we both need to see each other as human beings. It's not just one way. It's also you need to understand that we're fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, uh, that we're coming here to do a profession we love for you. We're parents and we're, I mean, whatever we are. And those started, unfortunately, it took those type of incidents, unfortunately, for the humanization of law enforcement to be seen and to be understood and the anguish and the pain and the lives lost and the lives affected to see that hey man, we're part of this conversation. We, let, we need to collectively work together to get through this. This is not a one-way street. Right. Um, I'm going to move forward. Uh, you're the chief of police in San Jose, and you're wrapping up 29 years. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Okay. How hard was it for you to step down from, from that role and, and, and be done with a – basically a, a department that half of your life you you were a part of you know it was difficult but you know when we call that i mean you kind of make peace you know with with yourself with regards to it and you know i had a great run uh there and I had a fantastic time working with those men and women and i had you know it's been you know it was probably you know when you start thinking of what the end of your end of your time and you start it doesn't just happen right away when you go okay today i'm gone uh, it was interesting because I was gonna actually gonna I was gonna announce my retirement, you know, uh, in June, uh, because I wanted to give the city manager six months to find the next chief. But then, you know, the protest and riots occurred, and I said to my city manager, "I can't announce right now. I, I got to wait till this is over." Um, and so then, you know, I announced a couple months later, but I was at peace with it. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, I did everything that I wanted to accomplish. I mean, I mean, from a, from a, from a work related perspective, obviously there's things that we could always look back and say, wish we would have accomplished, wish it would have done. Um, but, but I was, but I was, but I was at peace and obviously in those final days, I knew I wasn't done yet. I knew that I wanted to be, uh, that I wanted to go to another organization and, you know, towards that time, and I'll say the timing of it, really, I announced my retirement and then a month later found out that this position was coming open and, and, you know, and that happened, but I always knew I was going to continue that I wasn't done hanging up. I wasn't done. I was going to hang, I wasn't going to hang my cleats up yet. So that kind of gave me a little bit of, Hey, you know what? This, this department has been amazing. The city has been amazing. The men and women have been awesome. 
but take what you've learned and may and 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 do and do that somewhere else. What was your impression of Dallas uh, PD in the city of Dallas whenever you found out we had an opening and what drew you to us? You know, I've been in the city several times because of obviously coming out here uh, to watch some games. Uh, love the diversity. Uh, love the fact that it was a large city. Uh, you know, you know the perceptions of DPD from out the outside is particularly for me that it's it's a it was it was a top notch destination spot. You know, I am not a believer in. Not, let me just back up. I I wanted to go where I wanted to go. Uh, I mean, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that you know that there were other opportunities to go elsewhere, but I wanted to go where I wanted to go. And I and I say this, and I said this to a group of individuals at uh, TCU um, that were in a, a grad program, and I said, hey, listen, I'm I'm not saying that. It is very fortunate that the spot you wanted to go to is the one you got. But if you are, if you do want to be a leader and you have that passion and you end up putting in for multiple agencies, just make sure that you can credibly look at your men and women, credibly look at your community and say that you really want to be there and why, right? And I didn't need to figure that out. I really wanted to be here. Um, You know, obviously the ninth largest city in the country uh, you know, the, the population size, the growth and the challenge, you know, I, like I said, uh, I'm not ready to, uh, you know, to, to hang up my cleats. Uh, and I, I enjoy the challenge. It's, you know, every day people come up to me when things are going on and they'll go, chief, are you okay? <laughs> and I go, I'm fine. I'm fine. There's not a major city chief in America that doesn't know there's going to be issues every day. What's going on. And, and I still enjoy that. Right. So I wanted the challenge. I think the timing was was appropriate, and again, I was always going to retire in North Texas, mm-hmm. um, and so that's a big part of it as well. Is that not only that I look at Dallas PD as a destination spot, but from a retirement standpoint, from California, I was gonna I was gonna be one of those people that everybody's complaining about um, coming out to Texas. Yeah, like uh, Elon and Joe Rogan and all those folks. As long well, as he votes the right way, he'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Well, since you arrived, you had to deal with a uh, a lot in a, in a short amount of time. You had a uh, major policy chain in weed enforcement from um, for our, our city and our state because we're we're going a direction on that. Uh, we had a historic ice storm that hopefully we never see again. You had officers being shot at during that ice storm, and you also uh, deal with uh, Officer Penton's death. What went through your mind as you hit the ground and? In a very short amount of time, all of this happened. Well, you know, the day that I hit the ground here, like, you know, first of all, my mindset was, man, there is no, I don't get, I don't get a month or two to figure out what's going on. I mean, there's stuff that's expected that we need to, that we need to tackle and deal with. And, you know, all those issues that you mentioned, you know, those are not, abnormal issues that a chief has to deal with. I think what's what's different is we had to deal with them in such a very short period of time. Right. Um, I think we had, you know, in a period of, I can't remember now, but probably in a period of 30 days, what we had uh, three officers that were shot at while they were doing their duty, uh, which is uh, reprehensible. Obviously, uh, Mitchell's death, uh, was was tragic. 
um, and something that, you know, no chief wants to deal with, but they do understand that tragedy is going to befall us. And so that's always brutal. You know, the policy changes. And again, a lot of that is because, you know, looking at things and trying to make ourselves, uh, you know, deal with the, the issues that I feel we need to be dealing with. And I'll tell you what, going on patrol with officers was actually one of my first moments where, you know, I kind of realized, hey, listen, you know, our cops want to be going after the bad guys and gals and the guns and the dopes for sale and this and that and the other. Like, we're going to concentrate. We just need to concentrate on on things that are really affecting uh, our violent crime. And, you know, thinking of ways how to do that. But again, I say that that's not that's those aren't issues that any other chief, you know, isn't going to have to deal with. I think what makes this different is just that we had to deal with them in such a short period of time. Uh, but, um, but we, you know, you deal with them and, uh, you know, and you move on from that, uh, into the next one. I mean, it's, 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 it's never ending, uh, as you well know. Right. Right. And, uh, um, and so there's, there was a lot to do, um, you know, in this year. Um, and, uh, it's certainly, I certainly was not bored. But Dallas PD is rich in history, uh, from, Kennedy assassination, you know, it took place here, and uh, we actually had on one of the uh, o- the oldest living detective that that was part of that and handled Oswald and, and uh, Ruby and, and dealt with that uh, from somebody shooting up headquarters to July seventh. Um, one piece of history in Dallas that I want to uh, touch base with you on is the uh, Santos Rodriguez uh, murder. Um, I want to give a brief, uh, just a little overview for some of the listeners that may not remember that or be aware that it happened. Uh, in the morning of July 24th, 1973, uh, Dallas officers responded to uh, a burglary at the FINA gas station. And they took uh, 12-year-old Santos Rodriguez and, and his brother, uh, David Rodriguez, 13-year-old at the time, into custody. And they did an impromptu interrogation over the burglary, and one of the Dallas officers was playing Russian roulette with Santos Rodriguez uh, to get him to uh, confess to the crime. And the gun was not unloaded, and and he, he shot and killed uh, Santos Rodriguez. Uh, it was important for you to honor his family this year, and why was that important to you? You know, it was important because, again, going back to what we had spoken about earlier we to acknowledge uh, the things we've done in the past. When I had heard that the police department had not uh, formally apologized um, is something that I think needed to happen. Uh, obviously, you know, I wish it would have happened much sooner. Uh, but it was important for us because, again, if we're truly accepting to move forward from some of the mistakes that we've made in the past and accept those mistakes, then we have to... You have to apologize or repent when you when you need to. And it was important because the family actually had reached out to see what the involvement was going to be with the department. And to me, it was an absolute no-brainer. I mean, we're going to 100% do this. And, you know, the, the part that sticks out in my mind so much is how gracious his mother was. Uh, just... I'm going to tell you the truth, man. I'm not quite certain how cool I'm going to be if that happened to my kid. Right. I'm, I don't care if it's how many years later. And she was just uh, just a gracious woman and, you know, uh, quite frankly, felt as if she was forgotten. 
uh, on something that we just can't sweep that under the rug. I, I, I do truly feel that that one action that this department took, because I mean, I, I may have said the words, but we had a lot, you know, we had a lot of officers there in support. And, and I think that it's just didn't see me apologizing. They saw, you know, this police department doing that. It's those things that truly go a long way, not only for the actual apology as to what occurred and the aftermath of it, but moving forward uh, into other communities that have felt uh, that they've been wronged, maybe not to that extent, uh, but in other fashions as well. Um, yeah, that was, I, I watched that. That was very powerful. And I knew about that incident. And again, going back to the Rodney King, uh, there's, there's no way to justify that. And I was surprised too, that the, that the department has not apologized over all these years. I almost assumed that it did happen, but it, but it did not. And I'm glad that you, uh, you, you took a uh, leadership on that and you did that for that family. Cause that is uh, really important in, in the healing process for any family. I can't imagine that happening. I have a uh, eight year old daughter. I, and I can't imagine that happening. Yeah. And there's no way to justify it. Uh, we're going to get into mental health and policing. Josh, if you want to go ahead and um, get with the chief on some of these questions. I think we kind of hit on it. And I think um, one of the things that we've seen is, especially when you go through and we look at the ATO numbers, you know, the ATO provides um, counseling service, not only for our department, but for surrounding communities, our fire department. You know, it's, it's a pretty major deal, though our department also offers it through their psych services. Um, but July 7th uh, really changed that perspective. And whether people wanted to admit it or not, they were bothered by it one fashion or another, right? I mean, you couldn't be, regardless of whether it was the mere fact that the officers died or just the whole, the whole world at the time, the whole nation at the time, and how aggressive everything was and people not being able to comprehend all that. But um, I think on, on this question, it's just just – out of curiosity on this not knowing what your preparedness or your educational level on all that is but what 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 is your level of education regarding the mental wellness stress and trauma i mean you've dealt with your troops as a leader uh but this is something that's kind of i don't want to say it's come to light it's always been there but it's become more okay the stigma is starting to break for the individuals that are you know, hey, I don't want to. I don't want anybody to know. Or no, I'm fine. I can deal with everything, so on and so forth. But as as a chief of police, coming from a chief of police position to here, and just throughout your career, I mean, what is your educational level regarding all that? Well, I'll say, you know, I don't have formal education on the topic. I will. I'll, I'll say that that from uh, just career and professional perspective of what I've seen and know is. You know, seven seven aside, because coming into the city of Dallas, uh, you, you come in already knowing that there's trauma. Any individual that was here or hired uh, on or before seven seven uh, is affected by it. But you know, when when you've done this career for long enough and done a good job doing it, um, you can't help but have been affected by everything you've done in a manner that no other profession. Well, I don't want to say no other. There's other professions, but one of the few professions where the job itself has given you uh, mental stress. And we, and we all have our mechanisms to cope, uh, but that doesn't mean we didn't cope, right? So the issue was there to begin with. You know, I think that our officers and our men and women still have that 
that sense of bravado, uh, you know, our men and women, you know, don't want to admit when things are bothering them. We don't do a good enough job and we need to do better. Uh, we are working on some things where, uh, to be frank, and as I mentioned to the associations before, you know, oftentimes, you know, our officers are going to go to ATO and others before they go through their own chain, right? I mean, we know that. And one of the things that we need to look as a police department and working with the city attorney's office and other things is that we know, I mean, we're not going to point to all of them, but there are certain triggers, for lack of a better term, in our jobs that need extra attention, you know, whether it's, you know, when we saw young Cash, a four-year-old that was stabbed to death, murdered in the middle of the street, how anyone thinks that does that, that, that wouldn't affect uh, officers, um, you know, is beyond me. But, you know, elderly deaths, I, I mean, child deaths, murder, I mean, tragic accidents, you name it, right? We need to do a job where where I'd like to see individuals, if they're involved in those type of incidents, go see someone. And doing it proactively, you know, I'll tell you, I had a buddy that I went to the academy with that had gotten to two shootings, the first shooting he got into in the early 90s, and then he got into another shooting towards the end of our careers. But he told me one day, he goes, you know, he was, and he was working at the range because I actually took him out of patrol and put him at the range after his, his last shooting for him because he didn't do anything wrong. But he says to me, you know what, Chief? You know, I wish after my first shooting, I wish they just would have made me go see somebody. Because I didn't want to see somebody. I didn't want to make it look like I needed somebody. I wish someone just would have made me see somebody. And I'm of the mindset of, man, we've all seen the movie Goodwill Hunting. And I don't care if the individual sits there and watches the clock tick for an hour and doesn't say a word. But there might be one that will open up at some point, right? I think we need to find that balance that we as a department, and you you all do an amazing job, and ATO does such an amazing job, and I get that. But the onus primarily should be on us. And we need to find a better way to be more proactive and not reactive with these things. Uh, whether it's, you know, and we're going to be working on this. This is a, a 2022 project that's coming on. And I know uh, Ruben's actually spearheading it for me, for us, uh, with regards to looking at what models we can use. There are some models elsewhere that have similar things, whether that means bringing individuals in uh, to the department to have just uh, know, refresher training on how to cope and things of that nature. You know, we go to the bottle as a profession way too much to cope. And obviously we need, we, we need different uh, avenues to do that. And so I just think really truly one, I believe that, you know, the trauma that our officers see every day affects them, affects them, affects their families. I know not all of them are going to come forward. And that as a department, we need to be more proactive as at least uh, giving them an opportunity for help if they need it. Yeah, yeah, that pretty much answered the second question. Yeah, we're we're actually pretty fortunate. Uh, there, there's a doctor up in Frisco. She goes by Doctor T. It's Twiddell. Uh, she puts on like a it's a three day resiliency course, right? And they did it up there at the Frisco Star. You should go next time. It's in the Cowboys training area. <laughs> yeah, you'll love it. You would I, love I it. I know where the star is. Yeah, <laughs> so there five, ten, but uh, but it's up and it's 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 housed in the sports academy there. And if you've never seen that facility, it's phenomenal. And the things that those people do there is just in, incredible. And uh, she's pretty much linked up with this entire group up there and is just creating this larger platform, right? But 
Yeah, we got to sit through this thing, and it's it's interesting because she talks about the limbic system, how we adjust to stress, and just the first responder stress in general. And um, I think Ruben went to the last one. Uh, and uh, the the thing is, is that when you sit in that room, you're you're in there with firefighters, police officers, and uh, grown men and women. You know, and and whether they come from a busy department or not, whether your stress is your home life trying to cope with a divorce, child custody issue, death, uh, and then coming out here and dealing with something just like you described, like going to a homicide scene where you're finding four victim children, right? Um, coping with that type of situation, but understanding why we are the way we are and why we do the things we do. It was very eye-opening, and it's funny, she goes through this whole descriptive narrative of describes the limbic system describes our how we deal with it and 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 goes through this adjustment of stress right and uh you could have dropped a pin in that room there there wasn't a single individual on a phone Uh, everybody throughout that whole entire three-day deal related to some point at that and being later in latter in a career and being 45 and 20 years into my career now you know and having to cope with things myself and deal with things myself uh Man, I look back and I'm just like, you know, how how could we have done something different, you know? And that's one of the things that would be good for us to kind of venture off into and things we've talked about is having some type of educational platform through the ATO and uh, basically not necessarily such a peer support program, but having somebody such as her or Tanya Glenn come in and -hmm. talk to these officers and make them realize, hey, you know, here's the things that you need to look for as you go throughout your career. Talk to somebody in the academy as it starts, right? And just, you know, hey, here's what we can look at. Here's what you may face yourself with. These are the things that you're going to cope with. Here's how you may feel. When you feel like you're getting this way, these are the things, here's your resources, right? So we avoid having these ups and downs, up and downs, and you have somebody who's just off the charts, right? Or, or reacts some way at work and, and creates a situation that they never intended to getting into or, you know, their home life or whatever it may be. But the, but the big thing would be also to prevent suicide, right? I mean, we, we suffer a loss of, uh, I, I haven't even checked, uh, I haven't even checked the numbers for about three or four weeks, but, we we suffer so so many losses suicide of you know just a first responder just police officer and you get into the firefighter world and it just I mean the numbers just keep going up so but no I think you pretty much answered that because as a department you know you're right I think we should I mean yeah it's great to look for a nonprofit organization to help and support you but the problem with the department sometimes is people you know I don't know if I want to talk to that individual because there are no secrets in this police department. Right. And so that's one thing people always look at and say, I don't want to tell anybody about it, but it it's, but the stigma itself of individuals realizing like, Hey, you know, it's okay to have these issues. We can probably fix that now, not down the road when you're a full fledged alcoholic and you get into a car accident and hurt yourself or a family, or you find yourself going to jail for something, you know, or whatever it may be. But, well, you should have pre preemptive maintenance and, and take a proactive approach as opposed to wait until it becomes a problem in, in anything you roll out there. You're not, you're never going to have a hundred percent buy-in of anything. No, but if you get a 20% improvement, damn it, that's better than 0% improvement on anything you roll out. It's you strive for hundred percent. No, absolutely. I mean, listen, anything we try here, what have you, if it's worth trying, we're going to try it you know and uh and move forward i you know i i don't like to think that i put my money in a mattress and just leave it there i mean one of the reasons that you become a police chief is to 
is to come up with ideas and things and let's see how they work, right? Um, and so something that certainly that is going to be a, a high, uh, one of the highlights or one of the things that we're going to really keep an eye on in 2022, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of the programs we'll, we'll come up with. Moving into 2022, um, other than this, what is your vision for Dallas Police Department, and uh, what template are you setting up for your successor? Uh, in I've heard that you would like to – your successor to be somebody from within what 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 do you see that as well you know i'll say as we as we're starting off here in year ones in the books you know going to 2022 is to con- continue the the reduction of violent crime in our city uh, continue to be engaged one of the things that i talk about all the time and i say that we will be engaged i mean one of the reasons that i truly feel that crime has spiked in america is because of the fact of the lack of appreciation, lack of support. Officers have felt under fire. And as human beings in any profession, uh, officers have disengaged from their communities in a time where they need to engage even further. Uh, and when you know, when I say engagement, really it's truly the weed and seed mentality, right? When I say engagement, it is taking the criminal element off the street. We are going to do that. But it's also having community uh, you know, relationships and building trust. Listen, I say this all the time. Our community affairs division is working just as hard as robbery, homicide, gangs, CRT, SWAT in our in our grids and in our areas. And so we need to continue to do that. Uh, we need to continue to engage. We need to and continue to say that proactive policing is not a bad word. Uh, and we need to continue to be that model where our officers know that they're supported uh, and they need to be out there doing the work that they signed up to do. Uh, and, and so that's really important. So continuing down that trend is huge for 2020, for 2022. Uh, and then continuing that messaging that people can see that you can do both. Uh, we're taking criminal criminals off the street and we're also, uh, doing positive things for our community. Uh, and I'm say positive, positive things for our community is taking the criminal off the street, but doing things to build more community trust. Uh, ensure that individuals just don't see us in a moment of crisis, those type of things. But that doesn't take away, they are not mutually exclusive. And too often times in our profession and police chiefs think that you can only do one or the other or more of this, less of that. No, it is equal. Uh, we need to continue to do that. You know, obviously we need to hire. Uh, I mean, we're very fortunate uh, to have the support uh, that we've had with regards to being able to hire. I don't know a lot of major police departments in this country that are going to be, that have been allowed to hire 500 police officers in two years. And we are. Uh, now, granted, we know the delta with the attrition and everything else, but the mere fact that those 500 positions is is huge, so we got to continue to do that. Uh, yeah, you know, there's no question about it. I said I had four goals when I got here, and I said it uh, at this time last year in a meeting that I had with uh, the command staff was my goals are, number one, to reduce violent crime in the city of Dallas, two, to increase morale in the Dallas Police Department, three, to increase community trust, and four, is to ensure that the next police chief from the city of Dallas comes from inside the city of Dallas. And so, you know, there are things working with command staff and other things, whether it's, you know, making sure that, you know, when oftentimes, you know, making sure that they're dealing with associations, as an example, to understand that world, bring them in when I'm problem solving certain situations, having them part of that decision process, um, you know, talking through what my thinking is, whether right or wrong, uh, you know, things of that nature. Uh, really, and seeing what we're what we're doing, um, you know, I like I said, I'm not a stay in the office kind of chief. And the one thing that I think you need to be credible on is to be able to show your community that you care, to our officers that you care, uh, that you're committed, 
because I got to tell you the truth, and I say this very, very often, and it goes to this narrative, this ridiculous narrative nationally that's been going on, is I've been through a lot of neighborhoods in the city of Dallas, and regardless of language spoken, racial, racial or economic status, I have never heard the words, we want less of you in our neighborhoods. And in fact, it's our communities of color that are often frustrated and angry at me. Um, and then I get, and, 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 it, and it breaks my heart because I can't provide them more because that's what they're asking for. They want fair policing. There's no question about it. We need to be better in our professionals, question about it. But our neighborhoods do not want us to go away. And they understand our mission and they understand what we're doing because it's been no secret of what this crime plan has been. And so learning from that, um, learning from my mistakes, now I'm going to make mistakes, and I feel like they have a benefit to that. Hey, don't do that next time right. <laughs> when you, and you get it. I would love nothing more than to walk in the city manager's office one day and say, city manager, I'm, I'm, I'm calling it quits at some point this year. Um, I won't announce until six months to go. But don't waste your money on an outside search. Here in a perfect world, don't waste your money on an outside search. You're going to have a difficult job to do, and the difficult job is going to be to pick which one of these commanders is going to lead the, the DPD. That, I think you guys know me well enough to know that that conversation will 100%. <laughs> whether they listen to me or not, I don't right. know. But that's what my goal is. Um, that is one of the goals. And so it's not as simplistic as it sounds. Because to be honest with you, listen, in this line of work, it's always better to leave the party early and leave the party late. You know, I gave my commitment to my rank and f to, to my commanders that someday do hope, at some point one of them does hope to be the chief of the Dallas Police Department. You can't hold on forever. And I don't want to give the keys to a broken car to someone. And so when I say it's not as simplistic as it sounds, man, if we have increased morale, if we have reduced violent crime, if we have increased community trust, if we accomplish all those things collectively together to bring everyone on the team, then I'm hopeful that that last goal uh, will be attainable. Man, that's a <laughs> that's a good way to end that one right there. Yeah. Chief, I think that's a... We're going to roll into a final question. Got one for you. Okay. Cali or Texas? Texas. There you go. Hey. <laughs> we're happy to hear that. Man, did I... Drop that mic real quick. Yeah, yeah, drop it right now. Yeah. And we're happy to hear that. We're happy to have you. We want to thank you for coming on and doing this. I know you're busy, busy man. And I've, I've your schedule is ridiculous, but... The ATL thanks you, the Dallas Police Department thanks you, and we look forward to you leading us further in the future. And we don't want you to have that me that meeting with that manager just yet. <laughs> so stick around, please. Uh, it's not happening just yet. Hey, I can't thank you enough for having me. I listened to your podcast before, and I'm like, man, this is kind of cool. This is cool for me. Like, I was excited cool. coming here. Um, you guys do an amazing job. The organization does an amazing job. Uh, our men and women do an amazing job, man. This is a great place to be. I'm just so fortunate to have a front row seat to witness, witness all this work, and it was an honor being here today. Thank you. You know, Chief, uh, uh, yeah, I really thank you for being here. And uh, I'm sure you know this because I'm sure you hear it all the time, uh, but uh, you are greatly supported and uh, highly thought of. Uh, it, having you come in here, not to talk bad about anybody, but, um, yeah, having you to come in here from what was here before just – previously and turning this thing around um yeah just i don't know of anyone that has ever had anything negative to say about you i'm sure you've had to deal with people disciplinary actions that people may have other things to say with you but that just comes with the job but in generalities uh i hope you know 
the support that this department, the men and women give you and this community. I hear a lot of people stop me and be like, Hey, you're chief. I just can't believe I have relatives call me and be like, man, I saw that guy talk and this. I'm like, yeah, well, do you 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 realize how big an impact you had on everything when you were able to come in and get in uniform very first day of your job here? You know, I I say, I don't know how to do anything else. Right. Not coming in uniform here was like a non-starter for me. Like, you know, I, you know, I've known police chiefs in the past that will wear a suit to come to work and this and that. I mean, unless my uniforms get lost at the cleaners, you'll never see me that there. I mean, the majority of our men and women are in uniform. That's the majority, right? And so to me, you can never go wrong doing that. I just enjoy wearing the uniform. It was a non-starter. Um, and so, and I've said this to others before, because I've had these comments like, you know, it comes back to me like, you know, hey, someone said the chief was down in Capers just talking to people. Someone said the chief was in homicide. Someone said the chief... I don't know how to do it anyway else. I So, like, when I... Like, I just do it to do it. If I get 30 minutes on a break, yeah, I'll walk down to Capers, see hi, see... I, and so, to me, like, I don't know how to do it any other way, right? And so, I appreciate the sport more than, more than you know. I, know it, I think it's important. Um, our men and women need someone who supports them. There's no question about it. But our men and women also need someone who truly understands them. You know, I feel not for everything, but that I somewhat have that understanding. But again, when I do these things, man, it's because I enjoy it. Uh, I mean, I love going out with fugitive. I loved riding a horse for the first time in my life, right? I love going on patrol. Um, and, you know, you know, went out with narc. I mean, I, I love doing that Lincoln on leadership stuff, right? Because it helps. You know, granted, I'll tell you this. I mean, I'm sure from assistant chiefs on down, they're a little nervous every time I go out with a unit because generally speaking, I'll come back with, hey, we need to do this. Um, but I appreciate that very much. I think that's important. I think it's something to definitely build on as we move forward. You know, there's going to be ups and downs, but I think, you know, the whole ph- philosophy of trying to get back to the basics of police work, man, I tell you, this is not a new thing, all right? Being supportive of our community and taking crooks off the street, that's not new. Uh, we didn't, this is, we're not reinvent, this is, we just need to get back to basics for, uh, from a law enforcement perspective, and not just in Dallas, but nationally. Um, so that's all I've ever known and how to do it. So I appreciate that. Um, and we'll keep uh, driving on. But well, we definitely thank you for your service. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Appreciate thank you, Chief. All right. you being here. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, mister. I'll see this all the way through. Sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. Down when you're lonely, I'll pull you up. Life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough. I'll be your shoulder, together we'll run up from the bottom. Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey missus, hey mister, I'll see this all the way through No matter how far
sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far for the gold and the blue, I'll never give up.